Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a pediatric resident at the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University, and I will be your host. I'm here with Eric Ring, Assistant Professor of Pediatric Hematology and Oncology here at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Dr. Ring, how are you? I'm doing well, Zach. Thanks for having me. We also have Dr. Dan McCullum. He is an emergency medicine physician here at Augusta University. Dan, how are you? I'm doing great, Zach. Thanks for hosting us again. Today, we're excited to discuss the management of children with sickle cell disease who present to the emergency department with fever. Dr. Ring, get us started with some background information on sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease is a hemoglobinopathy that affects every organ in the body via hypoxemia and vascular insufficiency. Sickle cell disease results from a homozygous autosomal recessive mutation resulting in hemoglobin sickle or hemoglobin S, a low oxygen affinity hemoglobin. High levels of hemoglobin S and low oxygen states lead to polymerization of hemoglobin inside the RBC, causing rigidity in its sickle shape. This is where the disease gets its name. About 100,000 people in the United States are affected, and approximately 8% of African Americans are carriers for the sickle cell genes. Sickle cell disease has a significant burden on our patients and decreases their life expectancy by about 20 to 30 years on average. So is it the case that every patient with sickle cell disease has to be African American, or can other races also have this? So other races can absolutely have this. Um, It's very prominent in South America. Brazil has a very large sickle cell population. The Hispanic community carries this gene at a higher frequency than, say, the Caucasian population. But there are Caucasian people who have sickle cell disease. Do all patients with sickle cell disease have hemoglobin SS genotype, or are there other variants? What can sometimes be confusing is that sickle cell disease includes several different genotypes and phenotypes in addition to the most common hemoglobin SS. Hemoglobin SC, hemoglobin S beta 0, and hemoglobin S beta plus thalassemia are included in the spectrum of sickle cell disease as they have reduced or absent hemoglobin A production. Hemoglobin SS and hemoglobin S beta 0 thalassemia are associated with the most severe phenotype and tend to have the lower hemoglobin typically 6 to 9 grams per deciliter, and percent hemoglobin S above 80%. Hemoglobin SC is a moderate phenotype. These patients can be misleading in the acute care setting because they often present with normal hemoglobin, and their percent S is similar to that of someone with sickle cell trait, and they often have a benign medical history. However, it is important to remember that they can present exactly the same as hemoglobin SS patients with vaso-occlusive crises, acute chest syndrome, sepsis, splenic sequestration, or stroke. Patients with hemoglobin S-beta plus thalassemia have the mildest phenotype. These patients are often completely asymptomatic and can forget they have sickle cell disease into adulthood. Patients who only have one copy of sickle cell mutation have sickle cell trait and will have normal hemoglobin levels. Now that we have some background info, let's continue with a clinical case. You're working a shift in the pediatric ED, and a four-year-old boy is brought in by his parents with a fever up to 39 Celsius for one day. His parents report no other symptoms, but they know to bring him in when he has a fever. Dr. Ring, how do you start to work up this patient? So as always, a thorough history and physical is vital to taking care of these patients. But key things on the history and physical exam in a patient with sickle cell disease with a fever are signs of sepsis. Is the child ill or toxic peering? Are they in respiratory distress? Do they have evidence of hepatosplenomegaly? And asking the parents, is their spleen big at baseline? Do you feel their spleen at home? Have you noticed a difference in their spleen size? Often parents have been dealing with this for years, sometimes decades, and they know how to check a spleen on a child. Here's a few things to look for in particular with your history. First off, focus on the onset. Exactly when did the family first notice that the patient had a fever? Second, clarify exactly how they obtained this temperature. 
Was this a subjective fever where the child just said that they felt hot or had some chills? Or did the patient's family actually check the temperature with a thermometer? If so, how did they check it? Did they use something that was inaccurate, such as a forehead or ear thermometer? Or did they actually obtain something like a rectal temperature or oral temperature? Second, see if there's anything that's been bothering the child. Do they have any focal joint pain? Is there any skin changes that they've noticed? Other symptoms such as these could point you in the direction of a source for the patient's fever. Next up, find out what medications the patient's been taking, including over-the-counter medicines and prophylaxis medicines. If the patient has been taking medicines such as acetaminophen or ibuprofen at home, this may actually be masking a fever that otherwise would have been present on presentation in the emergency department. Knowing exactly when those medicines were taken can help assist to figure out what's going on with the patient. What is also vital in the care of sickle cell patients is knowing exactly how they treat their sickle cell disease. Are they on hydroxyurea therapy, which can in turn cause some mild immunosuppression? Do they get chronic transfusion therapy? This would indicate that their sickle cell disease may be more severe. Carefully questioning the family also in a respectful manner about any non-compliance issues is important. Has it been a couple weeks since they last took their antibiotics? Asking this in a way that isn't judgmental is key so that parents and family can be honest with you about what's going on with their child. As far as physical exam goes, I want to pay close attention to any signs of sources of fever. Look at the work of breathing of the child. Are there signs of retractions? Is there any subtle signs of tachypnea that might not have been accurately reflected in the triage vital signs? Listen very carefully for even subtle signs. Faint crackles could be the early sign that this could be an acute chest syndrome. Do a very careful abdominal exam, including looking for hepatosplenomegaly. The absence of splenomegaly might be normal for the patient, depending on their age and what their sickle cell history is. Do a very careful skin examination and make sure that you're properly uncovering the child. A fully clothed child is not a fully examined child. Subtle signs of cellulitis or skin changes that might be overlying a joint could be signs of osteomyelitis. It's very important to be aware of. Also do a careful examination of the fingers and toes. Subtle findings of dactylitis could be present. We know that young children with sickle cell disease are at very high risk for bacteremia and meningitis. By two to three months of age, as the fetal hemoglobin falls, infants with sickle cell disease develop splenic impairment that puts them at high risk of encapsulated bacterial infections. These patients need a stat CBC with differential, reticulocyte count, lactate, and blood culture. They need appropriate volume resuscitation if there is suspicion of dehydration with care to avoid volume overload as this can precipitate acute chest syndrome. After blood culture is obtained, he needs prompt administration of empiric antibiotics, at least third-generation cephalosporin, such as ceftriaxone. Other investigations, such as chest x-ray, urinalysis, urine culture, etc., can be guided by your history and exam. In patients with sickle cell disease, fever could be the first sign of an overwhelming infection, such as bacteremia, meningitis, osteomyelitis, or acute chest syndrome. Fever in these children must be treated as a medical emergency, so the time from presentation to administration of antibiotics should be considered a critical measure. Dr. Rain, do you have a particular temperature that you tell parents to call or bring their children in for a medical evaluation? The NHLBI guidelines suggest using fever of 38.5 degrees Celsius and greater as an indication to get labs and start antibiotics. If a sickle cell patient presents to medical care with any temperature greater than 38 Celsius, a true fever in any patient, they should get labs and antibiotics because of their increased risk of a cold bacterial infection. So I also consider a fever at home of 38 or 38.5 to be a true fever. If they then show up to the ER and are afebrile, I still do the sepsis workup. So just to make sure I'm tracking, if the parents say that they actually check their temperature at home and have an objective temperature and it was greater than 38 degrees, you're going to treat that as a fever, even if that fever broke by the time they got to my emergency department. That's correct. 
When preparing for this podcast, I found several retrospective studies trying to figure out the rate of bacteremia of children with sickle cell disease who present to the emergency department with fever. Two of these studies looked at cohorts of children in the United States. First, Baskins et al. published in 2013 a study of over 1,000 episodes of children with sickle cell disease presenting to Boston Children's Hospital with fever of 38.5 or greater. They reported only a 0.8% rate of bacteremia. Secondly, in 2018, Sirigati et al. studied a smaller cohort of about 600 febrile episodes at the University of Alabama in Birmingham and found a 2.6% rate of bacteremia. Dr. Ring, what do you recommend we do to reduce the risk of bacteremia in children with sickle cell disease? Historically, without vaccines or prophylactic penicillin, the risk of bacteremia with fever in these patients could be as high as 3 to 5%. From the 1980s to the early 2000s, mortality rates for pediatric patients with sickle cell disease decreased by almost 70%, with the most significant reduction in patients 0 to 3 years old. Much of these advances are thanks to a combination of newborn screening, early institution of penicillin prophylaxis, and vaccinations. In 1986, a randomized control trial demonstrated an 84% reduction in the incidence of infection with prophylactic penicillin alone. There were zero deaths in the penicillin group compared to three deaths in that receiving placebo. Introduction of pneumococcal conjugate vaccines also resulted in a greater than 90% reduction in the incidence of invasive pneumococcal disease in children less than five years old. Children identified by newborn screen as having sickle cell disease should immediately be started on twice-daily prophylactic penicillin or amoxicillin and continued through age 5. This is even before seeing a hematologist for the first time. Since newborns are screened at birth in the United States, patients with sickle cell disease are generally already known upon presentation to the emergency department. They should receive all of their age-appropriate vaccines, especially PCV13, that begins at 2 months. We also give meningococcal and 23-valent pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine at age 2 and 5 years. What all this means is that it's an important part of your history to make sure that the patient is properly vaccinated and specifically asked to make sure that the parents have not skipped any vaccines. Asking about compliance with any antibiotic prophylaxis is also critical because that could change your concern for bacteremia. It's also important to find out the birth history of a patient as well because if they came from another country that might not have been checking for sickle cell disease, or if the patient was born at home, they may have missed some of these screening tests. Children with sickle cell disease should receive all routine vaccines, including pneumococcal and meningococcal vaccines, twice-daily prophylactic penicillin up to age 5 years, and urgent medical evaluation if they're febrile to 38.5 or greater with labs and empiric antibiotics. Looking back at the Boston study, they identified nine cases of positive blood cultures with typical pathogens. Dr. Ring, how do we identify which children are high risk for bacterial infections in the emergency department? Even in well-appearing children with sickle cell disease, if they are febrile to 38.5 degrees Celsius or greater, we recommend a CBC, reticulocyte count, blood culture, lactate, and one dose of ceftriaxone. Patients with quote-unquote high-risk criteria, such as white blood cell count greater than 30,000 or less than 5,000, platelets less than 100,000 or hemoglobin less than 5 grams per deciliter are also thought to be at higher risk and are usually admitted to the hospital for at least observation and empiric antibiotics. We are also more cautious in patients who have high fever greater than 39.5 degrees Celsius or patients who have respiratory symptoms or any focal tenderness that may be concerning for osteomyelitis. Patients with a history of surgical splenectomy, not just functional splenectomy that all sickle cell patients have, or a prior episode of documented bacteremia, they are also at high risk for having another episode of bacteremia. 
The previously mentioned group from UAB found an 8% rate of bacteremia in the high-risk group versus 0% in the low-risk group. Interestingly, they noted that an ill appearance in the ED was associated with an 8.5-fold increased odds of having bacteremia. So beware the ill-appearing child. For our listeners, I'll quickly summarize those high-risk criteria. So one, history of fever greater than 39.5 degrees Celsius. Two, ill-appearing in the emergency department. Three, respiratory symptoms or focal tenderness on exam. Four, white blood cell count greater than 30,000 or less than 5,000. Five, platelet count less than 100,000. Six, hemoglobin less than 5 grams per deciliter. And finally, history of surgical splenectomy or prior episode of bacteremia. Dr. Ring, how do you manage patients that are determined to not be high risk after the initial evaluation? Patients that are well-appearing and have reassuring labs can be safely discharged home if they are provided good return precautions, have a working telephone, and access to transportation in case they need to come back to the hospital if their conditions worsen or if their blood culture becomes positive. Commonly, we have these children follow up in the clinic the next day for another dose of cetriaxone or consider oral antibiotics while we wait on the blood culture result. I personally recommend three days of oral amoxicillin clavulinic acid or an appropriate oral equivalent over subsequent daily ceftriaxone as there is evidence to suggest that this is an expensive and cumbersome practice without any clinical benefit. Emergency providers should be familiar with the local practice of their hematology-oncology practice in their community as there can be a fair amount of practice variability. I'd like to stress that hemoc is a team sport. It's very foolish for you to pretend that you know what's ideal for your patients without having a conversation with the local group that's taking care of these patients in your community. Going too broad spectrum with your antibiotics or not giving the antibiotics the local group wants can promote bacterial resistance and cause trouble during follow-up. Transitioning from the sepsis evaluation, Dr. Ring, how do you approach acute anemia in patients with sickle cell disease? Acute anemia is a decline in hemoglobin by 2 grams per deciliter or more from a patient's baseline value. Common causes in young children include aplastic crisis and splenic sequestration, but this can also be seen in acute chest syndrome. What is the typical presentation of an aplastic crisis? So typically these children will have gradual onset fatigue, shortness of breath, and even syncope. Fever is also common as viral infections are the most common inciting events. Screening labs will show anemia below baseline, reticulocytopenia, and often thrombocytopenia and or leukopenia. Aplastic crises are often secondary to acute infection with parvovirus B19, which infects erythroid precursors in the bone marrow. Patients with sickle cell disease have very short red blood cell lifespans, about 40 days compared to the normal 120 days, so they can become severely affected by even a short pause in erythroid production. These patients may require admission for red blood cell transfusion or close follow-up for serial blood counts. Immunity prevents future reinfection, so these children usually do well if managed appropriately. How does aplastic crisis present differently than splenic sequestration? Splenic sequestration is sudden enlargement of the spleen associated with a reduction of hemoglobin by 2 grams per deciliter from baseline. Typically, reticulocytes are elevated and platelet count is decreased or normal. Splenic sequestration is more common between 1 to 4 years of age, but may even occur in adolescents or adults if they have hemoglobin SC, hemoglobin S-beta plus thalassemia, or have preserved splenic tissue due to hydroxyurea therapy or chronic transfusions starting at a young age. How do you manage blood transfusions in these patients? If children with splenic sequestration and severe anemia have signs of poor perfusion and shock, they can be carefully transfused small volumes of red blood cells. Transfusion is typically limited to correcting hemoglobin to no greater than 8 grams per deciliter as sequestered erythrocytes in the enlarged spleen may re-enter the circulation 
This can cause hyperviscosity symptoms and sometimes stroke due to an excessively high hemoglobin concentration. Consultation with a pediatric hematologist is strongly recommended in this situation. The decision to transfuse these patients is complex and should be shared with the local hematologist if at all possible. So just to make sure I'm on the same page, unlike a lot of other anemic patients where I can kind of transfuse and ask questions later, saying that for a variety of reasons due to concerns such as hyperviscosity, as well as the issues with the patient having reactions to blood, we should try to avoid transfusion unless we're having a conversation with the hemog doctor. That is absolutely right. Uh, Overtransfusing someone can have dire consequences, and transfusing someone without a specific knowledge of their prior transfusion history and possible antibodies to red blood cell antigens could also have dire consequences. A plastic episode is an acute infection of red blood cell precursors commonly secondary to parvovirus B19. Labs will show acute anemia and low reticulocyte count. These patients may become severely anemic and temporarily depend on packed red blood cell and platelet transfusions. Next, splenic sequestration presents with acute anemia, thrombocytopenia associated with splenomegaly. These patients must be carefully transfused to prevent high hemoglobin levels and risk of hyperviscosity after splenic sequestration resolves. Moving on, I wanted to discuss acute chest syndrome. It is one of the most serious acute complications in patients with sickle cell disease. This is always what I'm worried about when I see these children with likely a viral URI. Dr. Ring, will you walk us through a typical presentation of acute chest? So the definition of acute chest is the acute onset of respiratory symptoms such as cough or shortness of breath and a new pulmonary infiltrate on chest x-ray in a patient with sickle cell disease. It is challenging or almost impossible to fully separate a new diagnosis of pneumonia from acute chest syndrome in the emergency room. Most commonly, it is associated with infection including viruses, bacteria, or atypical bacteria such as mycoplasma. Acute chest can also be secondary to other lung insults such as fat embolism, atelectasis, fluid overload, pulmonary edema, and aggregated sickle cells. Hemoglobin concentration may decline sharply as patients worsen. In the lungs, there is a vicious and progressive cycle of hypoxia, sickling, and loss of functional gas exchange. These patients can quickly progress into respiratory failure or even multi-organ failure if they are not treated appropriately. This is the most common cause of death in these children. So it sounds like a vicious spiral happens where the lungs get sicker, making hypoxia worse, which makes sickling worse, which only makes the lungs sicker until we have a patient that is critically ill. Is that right, Dr. Ring? That's right. I've seen patients who come in with a very subtle pneumonia on x-ray, a very small supplemental oxygen requirement, and in a matter of hours, they can progress to fulminant respiratory failure requiring intubation. Dr. Ring, how do you treat acute chest syndrome? These patients require an IV third-generation cephalosporin like ceftriaxone, atypical coverage with azithromycin, and respiratory support as necessary. I like to use albuterol along with chest percussive therapy to assist in airway clearance. Pain management with NSAIDs and parenteral narcotics is also vital as any splinting will further respiratory compromise and propagation of the acute chest. Simple blood transfusion of 10 to 15 cc's per kilo of packed red blood cells can somewhat lower the percent S improve oxygenation, and decrease sickling. Red blood cell exchange transfusion is reserved for patients with hypoxia and respiratory failure refractory to non-invasive oxygenation, aggressive pulmonary infiltrate, and or decline in hemoglobin despite simple transfusion. If I was at a community emergency department that didn't have access to a pediatric ICU, would you recommend that I consider transfer of these patients if I'm worried about acute chest? If you're worried about acute chest and more specifically worried about impending worsening of the acute chest despite maximal medical management, 
I would absolutely recommend transferring to an institution with a pediatric ICU and ideally a pediatric hematologist. To summarize acute chest, make the diagnosis by finding a new infiltrate on chest x-ray in a patient with sickle cell disease who has acute onset respiratory symptoms. Treat with a third-generation cephalosporin and macrolide like ceftriaxone and azithromycin. These patients require admission for close monitoring and consideration for an ICU level of care if respiratory symptoms progress or if exchange transfusion is required. At centers who don't have a PICU, consider whether early transfer is needed as these patients can become very sick very quickly. As we begin to wrap up, I want to discuss variability in how these patients are cared for in the emergency department. This has been noted in the emergency medicine literature over the last several years. One study by Ellison et al. published in Academic Emergency Medicine in 2015 reported that admission rates differ as much as 14 to 98 percent among pediatric emergency departments. Dr. Ring, have you noticed a similar variability during your training? There is absolutely wide variability, even among my partners here at this hospital, regarding the inpatient versus outpatient management of these patients. I prefer outpatient over inpatient management whenever possible, as long as it's safe. Sickle cell patients admitted to the hospital run the risk of nosocomial infection, iatrogenic acute chest syndrome due to fluid overload or oversedation from narcotics, and significant social and family stress. Overadmission also puts undue stress on the healthcare system. Where I practice, we care for approximately 700 children with sickle cell disease across southeast Georgia. We rely heavily on outlying hospitals to care for these patients should the need for hospitalization arise but a significant increase in the rate of admission or transfer of these patients would severely impact our children's hospital. I second what Dr. Ring is saying about attempting to safely manage these patients as outpatients as much as possible. Admitting a patient to the hospital always carries the risk of nosocomial infections. I must emphasize, though, that you have these conversations with your local hematology-oncology group in advance, as you don't want to try to figure this out at 2 a.m. It's much better to have a policy in place and know which patients they'd like admitted and which patients they'd like to follow up closely in outpatient clinics. Thanks. And even if you have to have that conversation at 2 a.m., these pediatric hematologists, they have a lot invested in these patients, so they don't mind being woken up at 2, 3 a.m. Personally, I don't. They have a lot invested, and they want to make sure that these patients are taken care of safely and effectively. Finally, finishing up with our case, our four-year-old was well-appearing with fever less than 39.5, no respiratory symptoms or focal tenderness concerning for osteomyelitis. He was given one dose of ceftriaxone after blood culture was obtained. His mother reported that he's up to date with his vaccines and compliant with twice-daily penicillin prophylaxis. He has no history of previous bacteremia or surgical splenectomy. Labs were remarkable for a white blood cell count of 20,000, hemoglobin of 8.5 grams per deciliter, platelet count of 350,000, reticulocyte count of 8%. Mom states that his hemoglobin is typically about 9 his case was discussed with his pediatric hematologist, who agreed with outpatient management because the child is low risk for occult bacteremia. Before leaving the emergency department, a working phone number and access to transportation to get to the hematology clinic the following day was confirmed. Our patient was discharged home with strict return precautions, including new respiratory symptoms or fever greater than 39.5 degrees Celsius. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia and Augusta University. We welcome any comments, suggestions, or feedback. You can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Also, remember this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. 
We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.